This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? Yep. Guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. And before we get into it with my good friend, Tomer Botner of Florentine Kitchen Knives, we've got to take care of a little bit of business. Axe Wax. I can't tell you how impressed I am with Axe Wax. Axe Wax is an all-natural food-safe wax for your axes, for your handles, for your metal, for your wood. I just sent out a knife, a chef's knife with walnut on it, and I had a carbon steel blade, which I had a force patine on, and I gave it a little bit of slick of Axe Wax just to kind of make sure that by the time it gets to where it needs to get, it's going to be, I'm not worried about humidity, it's going to be awesome. So go get yourself some Axe Wax, go to axewax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10 for 10% off your order, or if you're in the UK, Toby is nice enough at uh, UK Knife Supply to honor Full Blast 10, but do me a favor, he's taking on the chin for uh, for me and for Axwax, I'm most likely yeah to pay you got to pay Axwax if you give him if you take ten percent off of him. So go get yourself a couple extra things from Toby. It's he's doing a nice job, and thank you Toby for that. Next thing is, I really want you guys to really, really, really reconsider your website. Your website is something that's going to help you in this opportunity that you're taking to of making stuff. If you say, I'm not in business, but it, what it'll do is it will allow you to explain what you're doing, explain the products that you're having, answer any questions. And if you're in business, you can have a way to connect people's money with your money. So it's good to have a good website that's clear, that's that's helpful, it's informative. And if you go to akinteractive.com slash full blast, fill out the paperwork, Andreas Kalani will give the listeners of the Full Blast podcast 10% off on a new website or fixing your old website or making some logo redesign. He just did a new website for Charlie Lionheart that looks awesome, and he's a knife maker making websites for other makers. He can speak your language. He just did a beautiful logo for Ben Seacrest, uh, Fiery Ice from Forge. Did a really nice job there. Go get yourself some logo design. Get yourself some whatever you want. Graphic design work. He's your man. So akinteractive.com slash full blast. It's worth it. And he. And I appreciate Andreas Kalani for the support. Not to mention I really appreciate Axe Wax. They've been with us for a while now, and it's been really great. So I appreciate you, the listener, for spon- for supporting my sponsors and allow me to, allowing me to do this. My guest today is a great friend of mine. Tomer Botner, along with his wife, Gnome, have this beautiful company called Florentine Kitchen Knives. They make iconic custom knives. Iconic. These are iconic knives, and I'm telling you why. If you were to take a big batch of custom knives and put them, in a, and put them in a, on a table and pick out whose is what, you will always know t- Florentine Kitchen Knives by in a second because he's created such they've created such a beautiful brand and a beautiful knife tomer how are you my friend i'm good i'm good jeff i'm very excited and nervous to be talking to you today why uh we're you know friends. me you know me yeah, yeah hey listen so let's just cut the shit here the Knicks, as of today, are undefeated. Owen two. <laughs> they right. won their, their their opening game at Madison Square Garden against the Celtics was a barn burner until in overtime they won. Crazy. And then last night they were shooting threes all night long against the the Magic. 
Record record threes per game. Shots and I'm, makes. Dude, I am so excited. I tell you what, uh, Julius Randle has got me fired up. And I am super pumped. I actually have tickets to two games at the Garden, one in November and one in December. And I am so pumped I'm to, for the Knicks this year. I'm jealous. You know, when you, when you were here, uh, what is that, a couple of years ago, two years yeah. ago, you brought me those hats. And they came, they came in uh, really handy during the pandemic because I, I wear them all the time. And now with the masks and everything, everybody knows who I am all the time. I don't have to. Like, I'm, you, around the neighborhood, they know the guy with the Knicks hat. Yeah, you must have the only Knicks hat in all of, uh, in all of Spain. Probably. Probably. I, yeah, that's the funny thing about you, you is you are a diehard New York Knicks fan. I actually was at a game a few years ago where I was at a high school, I was at a high school reunion and uh, we saw Howard Stern in, on the front row, front court, court side, and you were sending me messages and you're what, six hours ahead. <laughs> so it must have been like three o'clock in the morning for you. You're yeah. a diehard Knicks fan. Where did you, how did you become a, a New York Knicks fan? Um, just from living in New York for a little bit, I, I spent maybe six months in the city and I was always an NBA fan, but I, obviously I, I don't have any connection to the U.S. So I was just a fan of the game and, you know, liked a couple of teams. But when I started, li- when I lived in New York, I kind of, kind of rubbed me, kind of grew on me, how you say it. Yeah. 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 Oh, I mean, I, I think that. I, New York fandom in itself is just, I mean, for me, I, I love New York sports. I'm not a big football guy. And maybe it is because the New York Giants and the New York Jets are, they both play in New Jersey. Maybe that's yeah. the reason why. Yeah. I've never been a, a football fan. But, like, there's something about the Yankees and the Knicks, especially, you know, Yankee Stadium is so iconic. Madison Square Garden is so iconic. Shea Stadium is so iconic. Well, now the new, the new Mets Stadium is eh, it's getting there, but it's not as iconic as Madison Square Garden and, and the New York Yankees. There's, there's something about being in, the, in Madison Square Garden that I remember as a child, my grandfather used to take us every year to Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. Every so often, we get Knicks tickets. I remember the. I remember when there were major fights at Madison Square Garden. It's just such an iconic thing. And then to kind of be around other New Yorkers from all the five boroughs, it is there is something exciting. And I would just, I mean, that open. I listen to the. I don't have TV, so we. I listen to all the games. Uh, just listening to the opening Knicks game against yeah. the Celtics was electric yeah definitely i mean well you know i i feel like i i feel like a real fan so i'm emotionally involved in the games it's not i mean where i come from in israel like fandom is much more hardcore than than the u.s for sure really yeah it's like i used to be a big uh, soccer football like yeah real football fan yeah, and I used to go to all the games. I actually started with basketball, then moved to bat- to football, and it's like people live it the whole week. It's like and get really mad, and there's violence and a lot of stuff around it that you don't find in the U.S. But we're working on it. We're yeah. working on the violence. Don't worry, <laughs> we're catching up. We're working on the violence. There's some shit that's going on. You know, that's the craziest thing. Is a lot. If you talk, to, I mean, I'm not a. I'm not a I'm not a giant I'm not a fanatical person. I, I probably the reason why I started listening 
to sports is because I used to love broadcasting so much. I had to listen to sports radio because mm. I just right. like the way that these guys were interacting with the audio and their tonality and the way they talked and the way they talked about it. It got to the point where I was like, I was just fascinated by listening to it and trying to understand what's happening. Yeah. But like, if you talk to most sports fans, they're just like, oh, we're not like those soccer fans in Europe and all over the place where they're like starting riots. And next thing you know, there's like that's the big thing now on TikTok and, and Instagram, all these, you know, fight fans, fights in the fights in the in the gardens and, and these brawls. And I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on with all that. Catching up. You're catching up. I'm, we're trying. I mean, we're doing the best we can here. I mean, you know, you can only be number two for so long in yeah. terms of in terms of violence. I mean, who knows? So just out of curiosity, when you were growing up in Israel, were you making things? How were you, as a child, how are you developing into? I know that you went to school for industrial design. How did you kind of put that into play? Um, no, I, I don't think I came in it, to it from um, uh, really a, a maker. Um, I was I, I was really into art. I was painting a lot. My grandfather painted really, like he wasn't a professional painter, but he, yeah. he kind of taught me and he painted really beautifully. And I was always, uh, I, I, liked, I liked to paint and, and was into all the, if it, like sculpture, origami, all those things where you, you make things, but not like in uh, making tools or making, I don't know, building carpentry. That wasn't really what I was doing. Um, and I was actually, I was into sports uh, growing up, like as a teenager. I actually played for, for a team when I'm between uh, 16 and 18 years old. And... Yeah, and I don't think I really had a clue what I wanted to do back then. Really? Yeah. That's, I think that the, I think that that's the strange part about being a kid is in some places, I was listening to, I don't know, I was listening to an interview with uh, Kate Beckinsale. Mm-hmm. Kate Beckinsale was talking about how the American educational system is so weird because what they do is they make kids focus on a broad range of things mm-hmm. as opposed to the... English version of education where they find out the three things that you like and then they allow you to focus on that and then maybe that kind of puts you in the right direction as opposed to having to be really good or being passable at all these things that you don't want anything to do with. And I would imagine that at a young age, there is that sense of like, well, I don't know what I want to do with my life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, well, I think we we also have a little buffer because we go to the army in Israel. So... Let's see. Like, if you make it out alive, you can make decisions. Let's not. <laughs> what was what was that? So, what at what age did you have to join the army? Eighteen. I was. Uh, I I enlisted a month after I graduated high school. Now, were you? Was that always? I mean, obviously, conscription in in Israel is one of the things. But leading up to knowing that you're going to be in the army, what does that feel like? Because I mean. As a as a, someone who's never, you know, I obviously was never served or never joined. I never even had, the, I had one slight opportunity, but it was like passed on. I, we didn't do it. But what is it like going through high school knowing that at the end of this, you're going to do conscription? I think it's, for me, some people are really looking forward to it. I was a little bit, I was nervous because I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in the army. And I wasn't. 
I knew that I didn't want to be a real like hardcore combat soldier, and I was trying to find something that I could do. But in the end, I wasn't. Um, I didn't make any moves before. I was like, I wasn't. My head wasn't in it, and I was right. in school. I was still in high school, and I had to worry about um, doing my final exams and everything, and I wasn't preparing for it. So I ended up getting drafted to where all people who really don't know what they want and can physically be combat soldiers uh, go to, which is uh, the, how do you call it, the armed cavalry? How do you call it, like, the tank sure. division? I think. Tank, I guess. You're asking me? I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm telling you, I have no, I have no I went, idea. I, I don't to... know, the guys with the guns and the helmets? <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, uh, the guys in the wrong guy. The guys with the tanks, yeah. Yeah, the guys with the tanks. Yeah. Yeah. So was there was there this moment of I mean I just I have a friend a good friend of mine actually this guy who got me into welding was his dad was an American fighter pilot who was training the Israeli Air Force back hmm. in the after Vietnam and then they ended up moving to Israel and then I think he I think that I I don't know how he ended up his his he my friend and his brother were born in Israel and he grew up in Israel. He's my age, maybe two years older. And he grew up in Israel. And then at sixteen, they moved back from uh, they moved back to the United States. Mm-hmm. And he missed conscription to the point where he was worried about visiting back because he thought that he would be in trouble because he never did the conscription. He was an Israeli citizen. I can imagine. I can imagine, especially if you're not. I can imagine this. Just a, I'm regardless of. The reasoning why you're going into the military, I would imagine that there is this intrepidation of like, what are their, what are the expectations of me? My the physical expectations, and you know, I, I would imagine it's very nerve wracking. Yeah, definitely. For me, it was, and I, I was at the beginning when I when I first uh, got enlisted, I was very concerned, and I was kind of, I think I was pretty much depressed for like a month, and. And trying to figure out how the hell am I, am I going to get out of there? And, but over time, I think, first of all, is the camaraderie. It's a big thing right. in the Army. And, and, and I, would, I wouldn't say it's not, not interesting. Like, especially, right. I mean, I was a tank driver in the end, and then I, I got injured a little bit and I went to do some office duties but I did the whole training up to commander's course and and tanks are interesting especially for someone who has a, like a technical and, and a visual mind um, to learn about all the bits and pieces and how it works and I don't know it ended up being uh, tolerable do you think that so you, you do you think that that experience informed your decisions on going to uh, a degree in, in uh, industrial design? No, I don't think so. I think it, it did affect me. It did change who I was. or I, I wouldn't say who I was, but it changed the way, uh, the way I behave. I mean, I was like, for instance, in high school, I was late all the time. Right. I, I lived five minutes from the school, and I was always late. After the army, I was I was never late to anything, ever. Um, I always took time very seriously, and I have a lot of discipline for myself and 
I also expect discipline from others, thanks to the Army. And, and it gave me a, an overview, I think, about systems and, and, um, and logistics and personnel and everything that you learn being part of a big system. I, I, would, I, I think that the reason why I, wa- I was in it, Gulf War started, I guess, 1991, 1990, 1990, 1991, and I was going to enlist because I'd gone through uh, 12, uh, 11 years of private school where it was very structured and strict and discipline oriented. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I needed discipline because my mind was so kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. Like I appreciated discipline. I had the opportunity to go to like a co ed school. And it was like without having to wear uniforms and not strict. And I was too afraid. I thought I was like, I'm going to like die in this quiet quag. I'm going to be too much freedom for me. Like I felt like I could, I, I would have done. I felt like I needed the discipline. That's one of the reasons why I was considering but my parents wouldn't, you know, my parents forbade it basically. Yeah. What, what is it? What do you think the mental, what do you think the thing about lateness is? I'm convinced. I'm convinced that it isn't. I don't. I think that there's some more underlying reasoning behind people being late. I can't tell you now because I don't remember um, myself as a, a person who's always late, and I was. I was. I was quite terrible. Um, I think I was like, as a teenager, I, I kind of had half a brain, but now. I definitely have just respect for my time and for everyone's time. And I just, I don't know, for me, it's like, it's just a habit. And if you're not early, you're late. Basically, I don't, I feel bad when I'm late. And yeah. If I'm late and I make sure that I say something before and it's just, it just stuck with me as a habit. I don't think I ever put much thought into it. I think it's just an efficient way to to live i wonder i've recently in the past 10 years i've recently been thinking lateness chronic lateness like there's some people who are always late and then they just justify saying oh i'm always late as opposed to just being like fixing this situation like this is a this is a this is a deficit in my personality that i need to fix they just be like "Ah, i'm always late i believe that lateness is a rebellion towards authority i think that it is a resentment a resentment towards the authority, even to like the very smallest minute, minute part of the fact, like having to make a plan. I know, I know there's someone in my family who constantly missed the train, constantly missed the, the plane, constantly missed appointments, constantly was late, 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 late. And it was part of that personality was wrapped around the fact that this person was just like, she resented being told what to do. And I believe that at a very subconscious level, I think that most people who are chronically late have a resentment towards authority, any type of authority. And I think that it is obviously it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it is a respect thing. It is like you're wasting other people's time when you're constantly late. But I just remember, I don't know. I have a real, my dad used to tell me if you're not five minutes early, you're late. And that was like, that was, he was, he used to say to me, the two most important things in the world are being on time and being, and being loyal. The problem was his idea of being loyal was being loyal to him, not to anybody else. You're not being loyal to your friends, not being loyal to anybody else, but being loyal to him. When you got out of the army, what was the direction in regards to going to university? 
I think I, w- I always expected to go to university. Um, I think it's part, like it's part of what we do with my family. Everybody goes to university, gets a degree. Um, I don't think I was even pushed into it. I just, it was obvious to me. I also, at that time, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. So hmm. I was really interested in literature. I, was, I, I always read a lot. I mean, I would, I would read encyclopedias when I was like, 10 just because I ran out of books you know like I was always like reading a lot and I really wanted to to be a a history teacher because I was very interested in history so um when I eventually well there was uh, some time between when I got out of the army and until I started university uh it was it was like three years in between um I I I went to study history, literature, and then like a general BA and hopefully become a teacher. But then I quit after one year because I, I realized I just can't study this way. I can't, it, I just, it's not, I have to do something with my hand. I just realized something right. about me changed from when I was a kid. I guess I was never a good student in, in high school either, but, and, and I pick up things better with my hands. And, and I think I, my, my mind works more three-dimensional. It's just so I thought I was maybe I'm gonna be, I was going to be an architect. So I kind of quit, quit university and decided to, to try and, um, and, and do the, I mean, I, I made the exams for Betzalel and to Shankar. And ah, actually, now I think about I, I, I thought I was going to be an architect, but then I made this kind of um, I don't know how you call it, like a prep school, like something that prepares you for. Sure. And, and then I found industrial design or product design, and and I said, aha, that's that's the one. That's not architecture. I want that. That's the thing I want. And then I, I signed up. I mean, I tr- I did the test the the test to get into a couple of schools, and I got into one. You know. That is interesting because the arch- the difference between architecture and product design is the idea of actual physical feeling. Yeah. Because when you're an architect, it's it's called the I think what they I think I was doing in art history, they were saying it was like the fourth dimension. It was about your relationship to the architecture as opposed to your actual the physicality of it. You know, so product design would I would imagine would be much more tactile. I wonder if I wonder if your time in the army had a, a big influence on that because you're not when you're in the army, it's not like being in school where you have books and stuff like that. You're just like you're physically doing these a- a- actions and yeah. having that kind of tactical res- tactical tactile response to whatever if you're being in with the tank or whatever you're doing. I would imagine that that would be very important. So what were some of the things you were doing in product design? I, I mean, I think, first of all, what, the reason I eventually chose product design is, is that reason where, where when you're an architect, you, you always, everything you do is models. Like right. you, you make a model of the actual thing and you never get to make the actual thing. Like it's not like you go and lay bricks afterwards. And, right. uh, and I was very interested in starting with an idea and finishing with a product that you made yourself, which is, you know... Um, I don't know how many years later, 15 years later, it's, it's actually what I do now. So I think that's what pulled me towards that most of all. And, and, and then in terms of what, what I did, um, 
I went to school for it basically. So school, college for for industrial design is is like worse than army. Basically, it's. Uh, <laughs> I didn't sleep for the first year. I was working at it all the time. I had also I had to work uh, in restaurants during to, to finance myself, and and you just do a lot of studios and projects, and, and it's like really really cool thinking exercises, and and you learn a lot about materials and processes, and it takes time. I mean, it took me five years to finish the school. It's supposed to be four, but. I mean, you, you can't push. I mean, you 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 must be one of the. I mean, at this point, you've got to be one of the, like the highlight, you know, on the wall of fame of that school. I mean, I don't know about that. It's a pretty I'm good saying, school. I'm saying, <laughs> I'm gonna send him a message. I'm gonna, talk, I'm gonna call him up. I'm gonna say, I'm like, come on, man, you spent five years. It's five good years right there. It's worth it. <laughs> yeah. So was it like the class is kind of like were you learning how to use equipment to make your ideas, or was it you know computer design or? Um, I'm trying to uh, picture what these classes were kind of like. I think the beginning, uh, the, the very first courses, you get like um, a kind of cardboard. Oh, like, okay. And you spend like six months working with just cardboard. And I think what you what you try to learn, uh, first like learn how to get from two dimensions to three dimensions and figure out how these, this transi- transition actually works and also how you take something that's so a material that's in itself is two-dimensional and make it three-dimensional so we, we invented a lot of different processes to make like so we can f- make um like big chunks of this thing and then treat it more like make more like s- statues basically or, or more things with more volume hmm. uh, and, you, and just you learn tricks and you you learn from from the people that came before you you know you learn it kind of trickles down and that's the first six months and then you start by i think most of it was like you get an assignment there's like a brief uh sometimes it's something very clear like okay we're making um um i don't know coffee machines and sometimes it's more open and you just come up with something that you think answers the brief most accurately, it, the there's two things that I'm, I'm immediately I was interested by. You know, I hate when, when I was in sculpture classes. I hated using cardboard. I hated it because it was so limiting. But that limitation of what you can do with exactly. it actually makes exactly. you better because you end up having to be a little bit more innovative in in to, in order to kind of push out your direction. Exactly. I mean, uh, yeah, you, you put it. In the best way, I think that the smaller the box is, the more the, the deeper you can go. Yeah. And then you have the idea of more along the lines of okay, making a coffee machine is one thing, but making these beautiful coffee machines, you know, it's a, I would imagine you have to juggle between you have to juggle between the functionality and the design of you know what makes this not just like you know Mr. Coffee or like a pour over thing. I would yeah. imagine that. That part is, that's the hardest part is creating art with function, you know? Yeah. When you do, when you do uh, things like coffee machines, you can't, as a student, I guess, you can't really know if it can actually work. And you don't go as deep, I think, as to, okay, there's not enough room for the pressure chamber here. Like, you don't go, it just has to kind of make sense. Uh, right. And I think that's one of the things that I found hard because I, 
I always like to get to the, like, to make sure, like, I want to start from the end. I mean, can it work? Or, like, will it, can I make it for the right price or for the right whatever? And then I go backwards and, and try to design it. And I wasn't, I didn't have such a, like, a free mind that I could just shed all the other things and just focus on something that looks good. It had yeah. to work. This these classes had to inform. It was all. It's almost like it was like the machine to give you to give you the structure and discipline in order to get to where you are today. I would imagine that like having um, you know having a briefs and having these design decisions and having this very specific uh, assignments really was a great evolution to making knives, making your knives. At yeah. what point in school did you get the idea, well, for this project, I'm going to make a knife? Well, it was my second final project. So school is four years. After, in the fourth year, you make what's what we call a final project. Basically, you spend about nine, nine to eight, eight, eight or nine months on, on one thing. You, you do a, a couple other things while you're doing it, but nothing major. And you dedicate like your last year mostly to doing this one thing that is like your thesis. Basically, you would compare it to um, if you compare yeah. it to to other university. Sure. Um, so I my first one I actually failed, and it's a very rare thing that someone fails because they don't let you get to presenting the thing if they think you're going to fail. And and I don't know something happened that year. And until then, I was a very, uh, I think something, like, I wasn't, um, I was more into uh, one-offs or, or maybe, like, right. um, uh, art design at, at that specific year, at least. I was, like, into, was more impressed by, by not by mass production of products, but, like, unique things. And, and this year, for some reason, I think five of us failed. And it's something that I think, that, well, the school maybe fucked up. Obviously, we all fucked up. But the, and, and I had to redo my last year, which was like a big shock. And I was very angry and, at the school in the beginning and then myself. And I made a decision that whatever happens this year, I'm leaving this school with a product. And... And basically, because I was working in kitchens and restaurants for the whole, most of the de that decade, um, somehow throughout my process of deciding what to do, I, I, I basically decided to make a knife. Um, just a, a tool in the kitchen was more interesting to me than any other tool. I said, I'm going to make a tool. The kitchen is more like the most interesting, let's say, room in the house for me. And I'm going to make a knife. It was pretty so, simple. So this decision was after you had already failed? Yes. So what was it, if you don't mind me asking, why do you think that you failed that exam? What was the project? Well, I kind of blocked it out. But it oh, really? was something, yeah. If, if you, I would need time to think about what I actually presented there. But I did present seven objects that had to do something with the seven sins. And they were supposed to be, they were... I think they ended up looking like more like stage props than products, and I don't think they were done well enough. Um, 
maybe the direction. Maybe it was the direction. Yeah, I think a lot about it was 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 bad, and I wasn't. Maybe I wasn't like expecting to fail, and I was just like, yeah, yeah I'm gonna pass this flying colors. I'm a good student. Like everybody likes what I do, and I don't think I. I, I can't really tell you what went wrong. I don't think I made any, um, how do you say? Um, mistakes? No, I, I, I think I made a lot of mistakes, but I don't think I, uh, my le- the lessons that I learned from this thing was more like, because I was so angry, I was just, no, okay, I'm going to show them. Uh, next year, I'm going to finish the school and I'm going to have a product. Like, I'm going to leave the school and I'm going to have a, a company. Out of spite. Yeah. If you had passed, if you had passed that exam, no, no Florentine kitchen knives. No, no, definitely not. When you looked, when you, you're, so you're pissed off, rightfully so, rightfully so. I mean, it's just like you put in on the time, you put in the energy, you put in the work, you did the thing, they fail you. It must have been a complete shock. Yeah. And it must have been humiliating, and you must have been angry. Yeah. You decide that for the next, did, before the next seat, the next session, you said, "I'm going to make a knife, and that's just going to be the end of it." Yeah. How did you have this uh, this epiphany? Besides the fact that you love being in the kitchen, was it just like I have to simplify my idea? Because it seems as though that like I always think what these schools want is you're just like. Sometimes my old art professor used to say, "This is a very ambitious project," and mm-hmm. when he used the word ambitious. It was always, there was always like this smear of, you're fucking not doing the right thing. You know, it was like, it was, he would say his ambition. It's like when someone says, oh, that's interesting. Interesting is supposed to be the buzzword for uh, when you say interesting like that. Like, oh, that's interesting. It means it fucking sucks. Yeah. But when someone, when my teacher used to say, you're taking on quite an ambitious project, it's like, you're taking on too much and this is going to fucking suck. So, yeah. like, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if, you know, you dialed it back, you all of a sudden, now you have this idea, I'm going to do this next thing, I'm going to do the, I'm going to do the, I'm going to make a knife, that's going to be the project, and I'm going to finish the school off with a fucking company. We're in there to fight, which is awesome. Spite is, I think spite's underrated, to be honest with you. I think doing things out of spite is a completely underrated reason for doing things. <laughs> when you started to do the designs for the knife, what were you thinking about? So, first of all, the choice was made because stupidly I thought, okay, I'm going to make something that I can actually make. It was like, I had no idea. I didn't know what heat treatment was. Like, I didn't, I didn't know anything. I... I thought I did, but obviously, like, oh, this is a small object. What it is, like, steel and whatever, wood? Okay, I could do that. Um, and then when it, when I started digging in, and it was a long process. It was, like, nine months of, of, of digging into it, to that world. Um, I decided that whatever I make, I have to make uh, something different. I mean, I have to offer something to a for a tool that's existed for a million and a half years, I have to find something that hasn't been done. And, and that was my objective. And I had another objective because I wanted to also make it a local product. So I wanted to be able to actually make it. It was important to me that the final thing that I present on that final day was an actual working pro- product. I decided... Um, I don't have like I don't have a car. I can't just go around the country. 
everything I do will be from uh, suppliers, materials that I can find in my neighborhood. So that was the two, the two cornerstones of my project. That's a bit, that's a bit, that's a tall order. Yeah, but make it happen, you know. When you designed the first knife, where were you making it? Where were you, where were you grinding the knife? Where were you doing all the kind of structural stuff? We had a workshop in school. It was a decent workshop. Um, not, you know, nothing like what, what we have like today, but it was enough for me to grind a little bit of uh, blades and play with contours and ha- make like actual three-dimensional models. When you started to look at this design, what were what were some of, just the, from the design aspect, you already have the idea that it's going to be local, you're going to have that it's going to be working. What were you thinking about in regards to the design of the knife? The the whole origin of why our knife looks like it does is uh, my thing. The, the thing I thought I was innovating, and maybe I wasn't aware enough at the time, and now I know there, were, there are some knives that do that, but maybe they came after us. Uh, I wanted to be able to offer you a different weight and balance for each uh, of my customers. And through through that thing, the different to be able to... To customize the position of the weight, if it's front, if it's balanced, if it's top heavy, like if it's a blade heavy, um, and, and the total weight, I was also, once I developed the system, I was also able to control the, the, the look of it, the colors, the materials, and that was basically what's why the knife looks like it does now. I'm fascinated. I, I, I was fortunate enough to be with you a couple of years ago at your shop. We had a great time. And I got to look at some of your knives, which I love. I, I have four of your knives at least. <laughs> and I know that there are more coming because I cover every time I see your <laughs> knives, I get pissed. I send you a message and I get pissed that I missed it. I, there was one that you had that was like had all sorts of the colored handles and then you had the laser etched on the thing. And my wife was just like, get that knife. You better get that knife. And I, and I was like, God damn it. I missed somebody stole it out of my cart one of the things that i was fascinating to me about your early knives i got to look at the wall and i looked at your early knives mm-hmm. the handle design is you know what your classic the classic quarantine kitchen knife is number one is there's no straight lines there right. there there there's it's it's a, the spine into the handles rounded the classic you know the, the bevel is rounded there's no straight edge on the bevel there's no i mean on the radius of the bevel mm-hmm. there's the tip of the knife goes is a little bit lower than the middle of the line of the knife which is kind of more you'd see towards like k tips and stuff like that less mm-hmm. that european style chef knife yeah. german style french knife it's usually there the tip is a little bit higher on the center line mm-hmm. but the stacked handle is what you're known for yeah. This colored stack handle with you have this brass bolster and then you have the st- the, the stacked uh, discs and then you have the the uh, the butt on the end the, the bronze butt that's the classic when I think of the classic Florentine kitchen knife that's what I look at mm-hmm. on that wall there was some of your early school uh, pieces that I was fascinated by. 
because one of them had, and if you go, I looked, I was deep, 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 deep on your Instagram page last night. I was, I was down, <laughs> I was down, I was down to 2011. There's some pictures of you, boy, with a mustache. Oof, <laughs> with fucking good ones. Oh. There's some good ones. I mean, we're talking like time has, time has come. Oh, time yeah. has changed. That 11, that 11 years, that 12 years is, uh, go that back 10 and years. Read something, yeah. Dude, the 10, you better, better go back in there because 10 years ago, you were a different looking dude. Yeah. So, one of the things about that knife particularly, and I'm not 100% sure where it was in regards to when you were in school, was you had you made a decision that was almost like a blacksmith's decision where you you stacked the handle. All right, so if you're not if you're not familiar with knife making, he he we're talking about a hidden tang knife where you don't where you, you know, the full tang knife is you you have two scales that rivet to get riveted together against the the knife with a profile you see the whole thing around. And then a hidden tang is it's embedded. So all the way around the handle you see handle material. So the the the, the hidden tang is embedded in the handle. So in this particular knife you had the bolster, you had the discs. I don't think they were colored at the time. Mm-hmm. And at the end, you had this clasp. You had, it was almost like uh, in what a lot of blacksmiths do is they're using wedges. Yeah, it was a wedge. Wedge closed. And you had, you made these decisions in your handle with wedges. Yeah. Tell me where you came up with that. Because as soon as I looked <laughs> at it at Barcelona, I was like, Motherfucker better start making these again because these, these, <laughs> these are awesome. Where did you think about how, when you were thinking about the handle construction? It's all how, it's all due to limitations. Like I couldn't, um, I just didn't know enough. So I, I just I, obviously I know nothing about. I, I knew nothing about blacksmithing or forging. I just had the means that I had was, was, uh, I did start off with, with laser cutting. I mean, I did cut, get into laser cutting in the, by the end of the project. So I could know, I knew that I could do, be very precise in, in the things that I cut out. Um, and it's just, um, I can't explain exactly how it evolved, but I, I knew that I just had to hold, uh, the handle with some pressure. Uh, I didn't want to rely on glue. I knew that I had to, so I had to put the last disc there had to be solid, so it was uh, stainless steel, and then I need to, to apply some pressure. And the, the thing I thought about was, why don't I just basically open up the two parts so they apply pressure from the back onto the front where the bolster is held by the, the blade, and that's the uh, and using like a brass wedge was the best way I found how to do it. Those are the decisions that you make. As a designer, as an artist, as a craftsperson, where you're celebrating the process itself, because that's when I was when I look, I look, I remember seeing it, being like, "God damn you, Tomer!" And this fucking thing. <laughs> the thing is, is the best. You said you're not a blacksmith; you don't know anything about it. That's almost better, because when you come into these things without the with without the trappings of what you're supposed to do or what you're sh- you know the way it's supposed to be, yeah. you kind of lose a little bit of that kind of you know that naive na- that naiveness. I mean, for lack of a better term. Yeah is the benefit to the design because all of a sudden you don't have someone saying you can't do it like that this yeah. is the way we do it you have to take and, the long route basically you you go you, you go through everything because you don't have anything automatic that you right. go to yeah 
But this wedge system was so amazing because I, you know, actually on the last episode of Knife Talk, we were talking about wah-style handles. Mm-hmm. And a wah-style handle is, is it's like those Japanese-style handles. There's like the, 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 the handle is like, you know, octagon or yeah. a square, rectangle. And there's a hole drilled out. And a lot of times what these guys do is they'll put two, two you know, they'll take a, they'll drill a hole and then they'll get a dowel the size of the hole and then they'll split the dowel and then put yeah. it on both sides. Yeah. And then they put it inside and then a lot of times you will actually see those two dowels on the bolster of the of, of the knife. And mm-hmm. what we were talking about was, is how do you make that these decisions intentional? And what I was starting to say was I've exactly. been starting to do using um, G10, G10 dowels, so the different colors and then actually exposing them out so they were like the these design decisions mm-hmm. are part are are taken care of and when i looked at that original piece all i can think of is he's using um he's answering a question the question is is with those discs is there is a degree of compression and you have to have some compression and pressure in order for it to be solid because otherwise you don't want those things slapping or flopping around and yeah. you have to be tight so the decision to put pressure in there with a wedge and to kind of just, you know, vice it in a little bit more and celebrating that 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 answer is what makes it like sculpture, what makes it like closest to being art where you're actually celebrating a decision that needs to be made. Right. I mean, we, well, my, my, the way I was taught was the form follows function. And even though my knives are very colorful, um, I think it's really straightforward. Like they look the way they look because how they function, and, and the same with that with that model. That the reason that it's brass is because we we needed a soft material. Like these things are the way they are because that's the best way for them to perform the best way. But those little details are actually what makes the product. Your first knives I saw on Instagram were full tang knives. At what point were you thinking about the stacked handle? It was it was when I when I decided that the thing that I can innovate in in a knife is that weight and balance that that solution basically to to be able to personalize weight weight and balance is when I came up with the th- of the stacked handle. It's like where, I'm going to put different materials on that handle. So if I put a metal or a brass disc more up front. I'm bringing the weight more forward. I'm also increasing the gen- like the total weight. So if I put it in the back, I'm bringing it more to the back. These little things on how many of them I put and where I put them. And that was the solution for it, the stacked handle. Be able to control how the handle is constructed. I never... You might have even mentioned this to me before and I just wasn't listening. I never thought about the fact that you're actually controlling the weight by the stacked handles hmm. that little uh that end you have that the brass end yeah. brings it back yeah i never it never even dawned on me i mean maybe i'm stupid but i mean it's like it is it is fascinating because i would imagine you're thinking about different types of materials at different ends and how you that idea of the balance that is so at some point you're thinking, all right, well, there's certain materials that are good, certain materials that are bad. I'm going to have to use glue at some point. When do you start to kind of think about maybe these things can be colorful? Um, I think they were. They started to be colorful 
one of the things I told before that I wanted to use only local materials and I was actually using scrap materials from small factory. I, the, the neighborhood where I was, where I was uh, living at the time, Florentine, that's the name of the neighborhood, is a, it's like a small industry neighborhood. It has like very, very small businesses like, you know, mom and pop like uh, shops and also small little one room factories. And I was using scraps from what they made. So I had some, some plywood, I had some, some plastics, some, some plexiglass, some leathers. So, and it kind of made itself, you know, I was like, okay, this is what I have. This is what I'm going to work with. Uh, In the beginning, I was using actually silicone instead of leather for my curves. Uh, to get the basically to be able to make curved handles and not uh, straight handles, um, but uh, so the first one have some some have leather, some have silicone. Was that a limitation to you? Because I know that you know you. It's interesting that you you know it's this you're having this playful interaction between form and function when you. Because it would be very easy for you. Your handle, one of the things is in your handles, and I'm lucky enough I got to make a couple. You have to use leather in order to have a little bit of extra compression so the discs can make the slight curve in the handle. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you would just have straight handles, and then you just like uh, the whole thing can be colored. You don't really don't have to worry about that. Exactly. At any point, were you thinking, because I mean, I'm I'm. You know, I use your knives every day, and you know there's no straight lines on it. Yeah. If did you, was there ever any point where you're just like, ah, I can make this straight, and then I don't have to deal with all these you know compression situations? Yeah, happened uh, like last year. And then we came up with the Kedma line, basically yeah. the, the, new, the, new, the new line, which is the more um, Asian-inspired line. Um, definitely easier. Uh, yeah, more options, more more control over over composition and color. Um, so we wanted to have that option too. I was definitely struggling with it all the time. I wish, I, I always wished I didn't have that limitation that, because uh, obviously the, the colorful, the, the color and it's become a big thing with, with the knives and with our clients. So there's always this thing that, that you have to have the leather, but so we made the other line. So the Florentine kitchen knife is designed. You graduate. They, they pass you for your knife. Do you remember what the passing knife was from, from your school? Yeah, I still have them here on display at the shop. I, I made uh, six knives. Actually, um, the, the blades I, were made by Lee Lerman, who's, who's now, he was a very young kid at the time, a teenager, I think. Now he's one of the world's like most sought after um, um, folder makers. Oh wow! Yeah, he's a, like a super. Yeah, he's a really really good maker, and he actually made my blades for me. I got him heat treated at some some heat treated facility, I, and I have him here. I look at him every day, and and to, the embarrassing thing is that. It, like nine years later, later people come in the shop and say, "How much is this one?" They always want to buy the first one. It's like I think yeah. I, I thought I was getting better, but it turns out I'm just getting worse. <laughs> Dude, I wanted I, that was the one with the wedges, right? Yeah, 
Yeah. Dude, I said the same thing because for me, it was almost like when I was looking them on display, it reminded me of something you'd see at like the the Metropolitan Museum of Art. <laughs> they were almost like these, they, or at, at like a they were they were like if you'd see at like a design. They look like out of a design exhibition. Yeah. Like there is almost like an Ames chair quality. There's almost this like they're very there has it with the the one that you did from school. There's like an art deco quality to it. The decisions that you made with the wedges. They're very you know, when you look at them, you're just like obviously they're not something you'd see in a in a in a uh they're very there there is a classic look to them that I could see in a museum. They, yeah, these ones have also like a cross cross section from like the handle is an X shape, and it's made from spring steel, and it actually has like two teeth in the front that catch the blade, if you remember. And they have the the brass circle, the brass uh, disc that's inside the blade. They have a lot of little details. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, they're they're not bad, I guess. Do you remember what your teacher said when you graduated? Were there any like remarks? I had a really good presentation. I remember I really had a good one. Uh, obviously, I was very nervous because I failed yeah. the year before. So if that happened again, I was like gonna die. But <laughs> uh, no, <Or> but I, <laughs> I would kill someone. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah, but no, it was drive obvious. A tank to, to yeah. Drive a tank through yeah. the building, you know. It was obvious from like the first minute. So I got really relaxed, really fast. And I hate presentations. I always hated it. I I went through five years of presenting almost every day. You know it. You know, you went to art school. We, yeah. I mean, it's pretty much the same. And 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 I always hated it. And I've I've never liked public speaking or any like to, you know. You know, it got it took you maybe six months to get me to do this. So you know how much I, I like know. talking about myself. I know. Wow, but I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I figured I'd warm you up with the Knicks, and then you would just <laughs> relax anyway. So, I, I, I think that the hardest part is. I mean, I think that that's something that, you know, we talk about uh, in general. Or I talk about it, at least is that it is it is important to be able to. I mean, you're obviously very well spoken, and you understand what you're doing. And I think it is important to be able to kind of like talk about where you came from yeah. in regards to your process. You know, your knives especially, Florentine Kitchen Knives, are, I told you, iconic. I mean, and I'm not just saying it because we're friends. I mean, you've, you know, you can't, you can't not be the most recognizable custom knife maker in Europe. Can't. I just, I find that hard to believe. Give me, at the level that you're at, I don't think that there is one, someone who's more recognizable whose knife is more recognizable by the shape, by the color, by the process than Florentine kitchen knives. I don't, I don't, I mean, I might be wrong, but I don't think I am. So you don't have to say anything. It's fine. Just take it. <laughs> Just take it. I know you don't like it, but I'll take it. So you, you're, you're out, you've, you've, you, you, you walk down the stairs, you graduated, you pump your fist in the air and fuck you. I made it. You can't tell me I didn't do it right. And you, yeah. uh, probably you're kicking yourself. Like, I guess that's, I'm glad they they failed me because now I, now I have a business. Yeah. What's your next step? How do you get in? How does Florentine kitchen knives start? Well, actually I didn't know I had a business. I mean, I, I, so I made these models. I, they're they're functional knives. They're heat treated. They're sharpened. They, everything works. They, I, I never used them a lot, but they're they're still around, uh, obviously. Um, 
And I, I had no idea what I was going to do next. I was like, okay, I mean, I better start looking for a job or something. And, and I was actually, during the last couple of years of school, working for some people. I was making, uh, I was working in other people's studios, making um, light fixtures mostly. Um, so I, I got to learn a little bit about electricity and, and light and all that. And, but... Two weeks later, I think we had a like a party for the class, and suddenly my phone goes like explodes. I've never like I was on full battery, and within ten minutes it was empty. And I was just getting tons of like notifications on my Instagram, which was a very small. Instagram and Instagram itself was quite new. That, that was one of the things that I luckily did right when I was doing the project. I was documenting everything, which was quite new at the time. And I was documenting it on a blog and on Instagram at the same time. And, and it turns out that Instagram posted my like a very ugly collage, collage of my project onto their feed. And all of a sudden, I was like, I mean... It wasn't what you, it wasn't like today, probably would be insane today. Then it was like a thousand followers or something. And, but I realized I have a chance here to, to actually make a business because people were just asking, well, how much is it? Where can I buy it? etc. And I told everyone, there's no product. It's just a model. And I decided to just go for it. Make the, I mean, I didn't have money. I started making a waiting list. I started taking names. Everyone who asked anything, I was like, give me your email. Uh, I'll keep you posted, working on it, and created um, a crowdfunding campaign. And it took a few months, and then I actually traveled to the U.S. for a couple of times and started working with a company there because I, I was just a designer. I didn't really know how to make it yet. Uh, or didn't have the, the, the means back in Israel. There wasn't any way to do it. And so I went to Massachusetts a couple of times um, and got the prototypes done, did a crowdfunding campaign, raised a whopping $10,000 uh, on the last day or something, and then got to making these lives happen. Basically, when you came to the United States, who did you work with? So I got I got there through to Pete and Aldo of New Jersey, New Jersey Steel, Steel Baron, um, and they took me up to Lamson in Massachusetts, which was a beautiful factory. I think it moved since then. And it was a really like it was an old factory, like on the water. You could see where how the water powered the factory back then. There was some, I don't know if you've been there, but it's, it's a no, nice place. No, I haven't. Um, I, I mean, it wasn't an easy experience in the end. Uh, nothing is. It was super complicated, but uh, I just needed someone to to make me a hundred blades because I had a Kickstarter going. Wow. First big, first batch out of the gate is a hundred. Yeah. Holy shit! With like heart, with like seven knives under your belt. Yeah, like yeah. Well, there's so many things that 
Yeah, I, I don't know what to say. It was, I mean, I learned when you, you know, it's been a while. I've made a few thousand knives so, since then. And obviously when you look back, you think, well, what an idiot I was. Um, but it's a process. I don't, I, don't, I don't see that as being, I think that it's being brave and bold and making a decision. I don't see that being an idiot at all. Oh, no, no. I, that, that's me. I mean, I'm, oh, okay. I go for it. I mean, I, I am... In a weird way, for someone who doesn't enjoy speaking about themselves so much, I'm pretty confident in what I do. Yeah, it's clear. I mean, <laughs> we spent time together. I, it's cl very clear. I, how did you end up meeting Joel from Cut Brooklyn? So in the, when I was like reading and Googling and, and, and like ordering books and whatever, everything I did during the process of the, of the final project in school, I came across the famous um, made by hand video where Joel, like the knife maker video where Joel is. And I was like, this is what I want to be. Like, this is the guy. Like he was, for me, it was amazing. It was like so romantic. And so, you know, yeah. and I obviously I ended, I ended up being very different, but I was like I'm I'm gonna go. I went when I went to to Lampson, I went I went uh, to Brooklyn and just knocked on his door and said hi. And he said, you know I'm Tomer. I'm kind of interested in knives. Um, I saw your movie. I like I saw your clip on YouTube, and he was super nice and just let me in and we talked for like three hours and show me around I was like you know I was I, I, I didn't know anything I was and, and Joel was so nice to me and we ended up becoming good friends and we visited them again uh, Joel and Julia and you know he's just um, for me he was, he was like my mentor when I before I opened this place I went there to consult with him understand his process a little bit. I, I went to a few people before we opened the shop in Barcelona just to, I wanted to perfect the process and, and make sure I know what I was doing. So one of the people I went to was Joel. He's a good dude. He is. He actually, actually he, I, our experience, my experience with Joel is he was supposed to do the Epicurious video hmm. that I was, that I got on. And, or he, the story is, is he was reached, he was a Condé Nast or, Epi, uh, you know, Epicurious reached out to him and he had just broken his leg. I guess mm. he was in like a motorcycle accident or yeah, something like he that. He broke it bad. Like really yeah, bad. He broke it bad. Like he was like laid up. Yeah. He, it was really bad. Yeah. And they reached out to him and to do a video and he says... And he said, go get, you know, he didn't know me. We did, I mean, maybe we knew each other, you know, maybe he, he watched one of my Instagram lives or something like that. Or I don't know how he did, but he says, go get Jeff because he's got a little bit of character. <laughs> and then they reached out. It, this is true. I had no idea. So he sent me an email. We never met. And he says, hey, listen, uh, food, uh, Epicurious is interested in doing a video. Uh, you mind if I give you your name? I'm like, All right, yeah, man, go ahead. So he, re he referred to me and I was going to do... I was gonna do the I was gonna do the video that uh, Will Griffin ended up doing, 
So Will Gri- I was going to do the Will Griffin video, and then we got a meeting, and then they switched me over to the Epicurious, and then Will Griffin did his video. Hmm. But he was, yeah, Joel was like, he was super cool, and then I had a hammer in here. I had a hammer in here oh, came maybe over, right. three years ago. Never met the guy. Hmm. He is not too far from me. Yeah. And he uh, he came. He, he, he came, and, and it was like the craziest part was, you know, Mareko Mamasi was here. All these knife makers were here. And then when I said, and I had never met Joel, and I don't think even any of these guys had met Joel. Yeah. And I said, oh, this is Joel from Cut Brooklyn. Everybody's jaw dropped. Yeah. Because he had such a huge reputation, and they're looking at me like, you fucking know Joel from Cut Brooklyn? I'm like, yeah, I guess so. He just showed up, and he we had a great time. He was super nice. I think he gave me a bottle of whiskey, and then he did the Irish goodbye. But he was <laughs> he couldn't have been nicer. But it was like all the knife makers who were there. I think Steve Pellegrino was there. Yeah. And there was a few other guys. And No, Joel is, you know, he's one of the godfathers for me. At OG. Least. Yeah. Dude, the people who knew who were at the who were at the who at at my hammer in, and I introduced them, they were like looking at me like, how the fuck do you know Joel from Cut, Cut Brooklyn? I was like, I don't know. He just showed up. I think Greg Sims was here. Mm-hmm. There was a few other people who were just like, whoa, Joel from Cut Brooklyn. Where are you get? Because he's kind of like a hermit almost. He is. He's, like, he's hard to, to get. Yeah. And then now I, I think that I'm in good graces with him because he sent me a message. You need an electrician. I, found, I, gave, I sent him my electrician who hooked him up. So, like, I think that I don't have to ask for anything from Joel, but if I do... I think I got one or two more in the tank from him if if, if I ever need it because I I hooked him up with a good electrician so so you, tell me about your time in New York for New York for six months what were you doing in New York when you were here um I was working odd jobs uh, restaurants uh, constructions um, movers I did the whole everything you could think of I I did oh my in God. New York um. Yeah, I, I just came in, um, I think it was after I spent six months in India, and I just had some plane tickets, because I used to work for an airline before doing some security stuff, and so I got plane tickets to New York, and, you know, I'll figure it out. I slept at, on my friend's, I think I slept with my friend Don's in, in his bed for like two months with him. Until I found another, uh, I was looking for an apartment, but it was just impossible. And with what I was making and what the, the the jobs I had, and and then I moved to like sleeping in in the um, the attic of one of my a family friend down in in the village, and I was just. Switching jobs all the time, trying to find something to do. I was just, you know, I was young. I didn't have any responsibilities. I really enjoyed it. And I was, I mean, lucky enough to have these friends that would help me out, would help me out with a place to stay. And this was, this was before you went to school? Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, so I, I graduated, I, I got out of the army at 21. I went quickly after that. I went to work for an airline in Belgium. So I lived in Belgium for a year, cut my contract, decided I wanted to travel. Traveled in India on a motorcycle for six months, like an idiot. Oh my God! What was that like? Oh, I was uh, insane. I mean, India's insane, and I didn't know how to drive a motorcycle. Also, what? So wait I, a second. Wait a second. You decide to go to India for six months, 
and then you just bought a motorcycle? Yeah, well, more complicated than that. I actually built a motorcycle. Oh, for uh, fuck's sake. How did you learn how to build a motorcycle? I didn't. I Basically, I went to a, a mechanic, and I said, I want to build a motorcycle that's, like, in the colors of my football team. And... <laughs> And let's uh, build it from scratch. So we got a chassis, like we got the frame, and piece by piece. I thought maybe if I was, I looked at him working. I helped out what I could, but I didn't do much. Uh, and I thought maybe I'll understand a little bit more about the the, the, um, the motorcycle when I actually have to drive it, because I've never ever been on a motorcycle before this one. Like I haven't ever been. A, I didn't know anything about it. It was really stupid, but that's what you do when you're like 22. So you're out of the army. This is out of the army. Yeah. You go to India and decide to build it, or you build it at home? No, in India. Built it in okay. India. So uh, you yeah. show up to India. You're off the airplane. You go to the first. You go to the first <laughs> motorcycle mechanic no, you provide. It took. Uh, I think it took a couple of months. Uh, I was traveling around India, mainly in the north. Then somewhere in Rishikesh, I found a, uh, a motorcycle mechanic and another fan. And, and basically, we built that motorcycle in a couple of weeks, I think. And and I went on a road trip with my with a friend that I met there that I didn't know before. And, and he also had a motorcycle and for to Varanasi, like we headed east. And I got, I think I blew out my clutch in like a day. I was so terrible. I got stuck on like at the top of some mountains in the Himalaya, like without a clutch. I was like driving with no gears for a few days until I found a mechanic or something. Uh, it was pretty insane. I had no idea what I was doing. What, where does this boldness come from? Because when I talk to you, I know you make good decisions, bold decisions. But I'm wondering, this doesn't come out of nowhere. This isn't like, I can't imagine being like, hey, by the way, I'm going to go to India and I'm going to build a motorcycle and drive it around. I've never driven a motorcycle before. Where yeah. does this come from? I think it's like the Israeli syndrome of uh, coming out of the army, you think you're invincible. And, you know, I'm the king of the world. Uh, I could do anything. Nothing's going to hurt me. Uh I don't, I mean, I was, it was not, not like in a cocky thing, but I think you get confidence. Like, I could do this. I mean, I've, I've done worse. I mean, I've handled more difficult things than this. I mean, Did you, would you say the trip was enjoyable? It's a good question. Um, I'd say it was a, a very complicated trip. Uh, I was alone a lot. I was like... I, I kind of got to spend time with myself, which is good. And I also saw a lot of beautiful places and met very interesting people. India, in the end, I think, is not the vibe for me, really. Um, it's kind of, you know, full of people, stressed, wherever. I mean, I travel, because you travel with a motorcycle, you, you get to places where no... Westerner has been, and there's it's just a weird feeling sometimes. And there's so many people everywhere, everybody looking at you all the time, right? Uh, in your business, like 
like um, I had a couple of weird incidents. I had a couple crashes. I but when I got to the end of like I did a tour of the whole India. I went to the Andaman Islands, got back. Uh, I kind of circled India. I got to Goa in the end, and and I was like Goa is like party town. It's like drugs and parties, and and that was like not me. And I was planning to go home, and then the tsunami hit. That was 2003, just the last day of 2003, basically, December 31st. And and that was like, okay, you're going, like you go home. Were you caught in the tsunami? I, that was one of the most, the, the weirdest nights of my life, because we were on the west side, not on the east side where the tsunami happened. But all of a sudden, we're just sitting at the beach, and we see the water start to go back. Recede. Yeah, the recede. And, I mean, at the beginning, it was like, yeah, it's probably the, just the tide. But then it keeps going and going. It was like 50 meters inside the sea. It was insane. And then we started hearing about the tsunami on the news. And everybody freaked out. The whole, the whole town, basically in cars, on top of cars, motorcycle, by foot, ran to the mountains. Basically ran out of town to climb on something. And we were on the west side. I mean, nothing happened. Then the water started coming back. And they came back and they went over and they, they flooded some, some of the restaurants. But it was like slowly. It wasn't, it wasn't a it wasn't violent thing. It wasn't a crash, thing. a crashing yeah, yeah, wave. Yeah. Um, that must have been terrifying. It was. It was like you, you didn't know what was going to happen because you were hearing what's happening. Obviously, it wasn't like... Nowadays, where you have it all on your phone, I never, I didn't have a phone there. I didn't have like, I didn't even have a digital camera. It was like, so you didn't really hear everything. So it was unclear and very scary. Yeah. So the water came back and it was a, it slowly, slowly flooded that town. Yeah, yeah, just uh, yeah, flood a little bit and then everything got back because there was so much water on one side of the world that just just went back a little bit. Right. Oh, then it's time to go back and let's get it the hell out of here. What did you do with the motorcycle? I sold it um, when I got, I sold it, uh, I think, uh, a couple of weeks before. <laughs> I sold it to some Israeli for more money than it cost to make. It's like, Look at you. Yeah, Look at you getting your own countrymen out of the, out of the country. Nice. That's how we do each other. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not mad at that. I'm not mad at that at all. So now we're gonna fat. I want to fast forward to Barcelona. You've created the the Kickstarter or the the crowdfunding. You've got the hundred knives. You're starting to realize that this is a business. You've got the Brunos are helping you out, and 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 Joel from Cut Brooklyn is getting you squared away. What makes you decide to go to Barcelona? So the the beginning of the business was I was just the designer, right? So I was making the designs, I was traveling. By then, I, I had um, a relationship with a Portuguese factory that was uh, making the knives. I went there, I was making batches, basically batches of 100, 200. It grew every year, it was getting better. And, but I felt like I had no control in the end, and it wasn't exactly what I wanted, and I wanted to make better products, and I wanted to be able to offer more to my customers, basically to I saw the potential in the design and I thought that the lack of flexibility by working with like a big workshop 
is detrimental to the the, right. the the project that we have here that we can actually make happen. And so I said, in the beginning, I said, let's just get out of Israel. It's like, it's an island. Everything's complicated. Politics is complicated. Um, logistics are complicated. Taxes, uh, customs, whatever. Let's just try the EU and see how it goes. And so we moved here in 2015. I was never here. <laughs> I sense a theme here. But I was never here before we moved here. Uh, we just, my wife said, Noam said, let's go to Barcelona. I lived here for a couple of months when I was younger. I liked it. I said, okay, no problem. And, and then Noam got pregnant three months later. And we basically started having a life here, like a grown-up life. Yeah. And over that time, business was going well, but I still had that feeling. And I decided I got to make that move. Now I want to make all the knives myself. And I want to control everything and, and make this like a real, a real thing and a thing of quality. So we, we, we put out the word to our customers and clients for over the years that we're looking for an investment and a partner. And luckily, we, one of them, Michael, Michael McGrath, wanted to, to join in. And basically, we partnered with him. He gave us uh, what we needed to, to build this place and started our own workshop. He's a good dude, by the way. I was fortunate enough to meet him yeah. at your at your shop, and I had a real nice conversation with him. One of the interesting things I was thinking about you and thinking about your business and and thinking about Barcelona and everything like that, and what you just were talking about in terms of control. You know, when you look at knife companies, let me as an example, let's just talk about Bob Kramer. Yeah. From what Bob Kramer, from what I'm under the impression of, Bob Kramer was able to produce enough volume that these companies, I think it was Shun was first, and then maybe, I guess, was Willing next. Willing, yeah. They were able to say, okay, we want to, I'm under the, there's two things. There's one idea is that they wanted his name involved. The other thing is, is they wanted to take him out of the market. That's really what I, that's what I heard. That's like from a couple of like high-end places. That they, he was creating in a volume that they wanted to like have his market. Right. What I started to think about was, and there's a lot of people, I've talked to Mareko about this. And I talked to a lot of people about the idea of being taken on as, taken on from a knife company like Zwilling or, or you know, Wustoff or Global. Take, name, your, name your big corporate company that yeah. makes knives. The idea of is is like they say to you like we want to make we want to make your knives and it'll be under your name and we'll do all the thing and it'll be the licensing blah 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 blah. I was thinking about your knives in that situation and I almost feel like even if you had the opportunity, let's just say for argument's sake, Global calls you up. I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm using Global, but I'm using Global, mm -hmm. and they say, Tomer, we want to make Florentine kitchen knives. You will give you a license. Well, you can, you know, it'll be just the way you want it. I don't think, I think your traditional stack handles would be too hard for a giant company to do. I think so. 
that's the thing about the, these giant companies because they they mostly do mostly do these simple hidden a uh, full tang knives because it's much easier to see and see out the handle scales and then you yeah. can do the you know do do it but the hardest i think one of the harder parts of your production is your stacked handles with not the kedma style i want to talk about kedma in a minute but yeah. the way you do your handles is probably the most involved part of the whole project yeah it's definitely the most uh, it, well, I wouldn't say it's the most, it, it's not the most time consuming, but for a factory, and I've been to a lot of these big factories because it's very interesting to me. Um, it's definitely the hardest part and it's really out of their comfort zone to right. actually have a person sitting there and doing this and being responsible for the order to be right for the, um, I was lucky enough to be working with some some factories over when we when we make very large batches or we have like one design that we can say okay we can we can use them for this and like if we make really big orders of table knives or whatever we sometimes ask the portuguese uh, our portuguese partners to make and they can do that but it's definitely a difficult thing for them and but yeah i was just thinking i was thinking about it too like what would happen if if uh if someone would offer that to us, but I don't think, I don't think it will work. And now, just for yeah. the listener, the the hard part is is when you're making one of his handles. And once again, I was lucky enough to make a couple. You're actually you're putting the knife in a, into a vise. I'm just so the makers can understand. You're putting the knife in the vise blade side down. Then you're putting on your the bolster, the brass bolster, and then you're fitting over the the each disc. And when you're talking about an order, you have such a custom, a different, uh, a custom choice in terms of the color. You're alternating a certain amount of discs. I think it's like sixty something, fifty something, sixty something. Depends on the knife, but close to seventy the, on the big knives. Yeah, seventy. So there's there's a color, there's the color choices, and then every so often you have to throw in a leather one because it is curved in order to make the curve and to make it look correct there has to be some compression and then the leather has it so the handwork is there's a lot of handwork done to have those stacked colored handles now i'm sure you could say well what if you just like you know it didn't have this the classic florentine kitchen knife has that stacked color with the multicolors and the differential it makes it too it makes it hard for like a guy like willing to say okay we can do this because you it's too much handwork it's it's too much handwork for a big company yeah i'm it, yeah. It, if you decide on like a fix something you could probably find a way well i probably know how you could find a way to to make the handle separately than just put it on and it would be like an easier thing, but you lose the ability to, to customize. You would need to make like, I don't know if you remember this as a kid, but there were these, like I had this little pinball machine or actually there's like, a, there's this thing it's called like, I think it's called like a coin slot, a coin sorter. And then you would have to like, have exactly. like a, co- yeah. a coin, like sorter. in the bus. Like in the bus, yeah. you have a coin sorter and some way in which you'd have to create the machine. I think that's your next move is you create the automated machine that stacks up your handles in the, yeah. you know, you pick the colors, you know where the leather is going to go. And then you create this weird sorting machine that like gets them all squared away. But then you got to figure out how to put the epoxy in. I don't know. I, you, well, you're one of the most innovative people I know. And, and, and it made me think about like the fact that there's just no way that you would ever do something like that where... 
you'd have a company like Zwilling. And you're the best candidate. Of all the knife makers I know, I don't know a better candidate for a company to say, we want to make your knives and have Florentine Kitchen Knives be a, a part of whatever, Zwilling, Global, whatever. I don't know I wonder, a better... Sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I, just, I wonder why it, like, it never happened since. I don't think it happened, did it? I don't think it happened to anyone since. It happens to like... Well, I don't do, think like, anyone's doing the volume. Or... But no one's doing the volume. Right. That the whole, from what I understand, it wasn't just Bob's name. It was the fact that he was able to create a volume that they decided to capitalize on. It happened to do with his name, but it also happened to do the volume they were doing. But I, and, I actually don't know that part of the story. How was he making that much, that many knives? I can't. I can't. I can't. I'm. I was sworn to secrecy. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's gonna have to be. But there was. <laughs> there were. There were. There were. There was. There were things involved that allowed him to do more volume. Mm, okay. You know, he, yeah. That's. You know, he, I'm. I'm. Uh... Well, I'm always thinking about that. Always, um, I'm thinking about like, um, like ha- like making forged blades, like drop forged blades and stuff like that would make things faster. And I'm thinking about. I mean, right now, like last year was this year. We had a project with a, a student in the city here about making three three D printed handles. Oh yeah, uh, which is could be a great solution for what we do. That you actually, if you could just print the handle either on the blade or just uh, print it according to what the customer wants. You can do it on the website, and then you print the different colors. It doesn't have to be even disc. It can be whatever, like anything you want. But the, the technology is not there yet in terms right. of 3D printing. It's not as fine. It's not, it'll be a pretty, it's not good for, for the kind of product we do. Well, the interesting thing would be ultimately was all of a sudden, once you, the 3D printing comes down correctly, now you could have the you could create the file so you wouldn't have to deal with the leather strap, leather pre- pressure anymore. Yeah, like yeah, you could of add a you little bit of that material that. so you'd have exactly. these. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we have uh, in my town we have a, a company it's called Bantam Tools, and I'm mm-hmm. very friendly with the owner. And we want to do some business together. And I'm trying to figure out a way to do business. But the problem is, is like those little tabletop CNC machines hate G10, like the the the, the actual cutting um, bits. Yeah, and you'd be going through cutting bits like crazy. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We we deal with that all the time. We buy a lot of tools for the CNC machine because we make everything in house. All the all the disc from Mikarta. Probably Mikarta is a bit easier on the tools than g10 it's just a little right. bit less dense but it's still a very it's probably the most difficult out of anything we use i mean the tools can deal fine with brass and aluminum or wood but picara is what what gets them in the end yeah i don't know i the, the i think it, what the interesting part is is i think technology is moving in your favor because i mean as opposed to like a blacksmith's you know, uh, you know. I, I just think that like one of the things that you've done that's been so. I mean, I, I consider you to be. A, I'm very fortunate that I'm. I, I consider you to be a friend, and I look to you in terms of seeing knife making as a business in a much more. I'm going to say it an adult way, as opposed to this artistic. You know, there's almost more of a naive idea yeah. of how we try to make knives and sell the knives and the idea is to have this inner satisfaction as opposed to seeing it as a business you've always been someone that i look up to in regards to that 
I would imagine that, and not to mention, you're also probably the most forward thinking that uh, knife maker that I know. Um, and I and I appreciate everything. I mean, I appreciate our time together. Appreciate everything. I'm interested to know what you see the future is for you guys because we'll back. Let's just back it up a little bit. So the classic knives are the stacked handle is the classic Florentine kitchen knife. P.S. Yeah. There is no knife maker on earth that has better fan tattoos than you. <laughs> you get. They're knife makers. I had a, a guy just got a tattoo. of. I've had guys get tattoos of my knives. The last one was really, really good. But some of them have been so god-awful, it's, like, embarrassing. Nobody, nobody gets better knife tattoos of, of, a, of a, their knife than a Florentine kitchen knife. I'll take it. You can, you can take it. I've, you've sent me, like, pictures and pictures of people's Florentine kitchen knife tattoos, and they always look so good. Well, they have it's good like, taste. These people have, have good, good taste. Not like they have know. good taste. They actually. There was one point where one guy sent me a picture of what he got done off my. He just pulled, pulled off the website. I don't know what the hell he did, but I sent him a son of a. I almost sent him a message saying, "Look, I would have done the drawing for you. Don't. <laughs> well, this is this is this is all bad. This is a real bad. This is. Can real you erase bad. this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, what do you say? What do you say, to guy? What do you say, to guy? I'm really <laughs> honored, but it's terrible. I mean, I could have done. My, my father said to me about my tattoos. He says, "I understand why you got the tattoos, but why do they have to be so second rate?" You know? <laughs> but I mean, in regards to innovation, I don't think there's anyone more forward thinking than you. And then to the point where, so your your stacked handles are for sure your signature style. If you look at the whole concept you do the stacked handles and you do the full the, the full tang handles i have both i love both be it ps i don't know Thank which you. one i love better i mm. don't know which one i love better i got the stainless i got the carbon i don't know what i love better mm. it's a it's a i know what my kid loves better but it's fine what you like better? um she loves the stacked handles mm. my wife likes the stacked handles too yeah. but you made me one you made me one with that like you know like military like camouflage handle i don't know what it is about it i love it mm. um what do you so you, you the you know you started to do the Kedma, which is I love the Kedma by the way. I used the Kedma last night. Nice. Um, the Kedma handles are it's a straight, it's more of that Japanese style. So the original knives are a little bit more Western style. The Kedma brand is a little bit more Japanese style. I like the fact that you've made the trend. The, there's the difference with those are as opposed to the original design knives where there's no straight lines. The Kedma style is almost all straight lines. Yeah. Was that a conscious decision? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Things need to work together, you know. It's just uh it's a design decision. It but it 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 what it's it's fascinating to me is there's a there's this very logical progression between the two. Like you can just look at the both of them and you can be like they they live together from the same family but they yeah. have totally they have totally parallel uh, directions. Well, obviously, uh, you know, I li I, I'm living with this thing for, for years now, and it's always, um, my mind is always thinking, in general, being like the owner of your own business is a stressful thing, and you're always thinking, what can I do better? What's going to be, what's going to happen? What are we going to do next week or in two weeks or next year? Like, it's, there's always... It's always in the back of your head, and you're also always thinking about the product and how it can be better, and what which products should we make, and how we should make them. And and I think we are very similar in a, in a lot of ways. In you the way, and me? Yeah, yeah. In, in the way we treat this 100. business, and the way we're thinking about 
things. Um, I think we're like pragmatic where it needs to be, and you know, the dogmatic where we need to be. Like, I think we we think the same in a lot of ways. Um, I'm honored. I'm honored that you'd put me in that position. I, I mean, I I, uh, I look up to you in a lot of regards. Nah, you're, very, uh, you're more pragmatic than I am. I wonder, though, when you look at the Kedma, when you're thinking about new designs, because you don't do, I mean, you don't do one-offs. You don't, you know, there's not a whole lot of, you know, you, you're very specific in regards to what you're doing, what yeah. you're releasing. It's, it's The question for me is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, what do you want to be? Like, and, and every maker can ask themselves and answer a different question. But do I want to be making one-by-one one one knives when I'm 70 years old, uh, sitting on the grinder? No, that's not interesting to me. Uh, for me, I enjoy... First of all, I, I enjoy making uh, more products. I, I enjoy the constant step-by-step uh, -step improvement. Um, uh, but in the larger scales, like we, when you make a diff one little difference and it affects everything. Um, and I enjoy the business side of it. I mean, I enjoy the communication with people. I enjoy the projects. The, 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 we are not that big a company that we, that we have, um, let's say every project is by himself. And it's, uh, we have our limitations, but there's also a creative process uh, to it. Um, and f f at this point in my life right now, I, I enjoy, I mean, I would enjoy, I, it's even happening now. Like the, what I do most of the, like the actual making that I do now is mostly sharpening and I help out and, and I do little bits and, and pieces, but the crew here does most of the heavy lifting and, and I enjoy like passing on the, the, the knowledge and I enjoy seeing them improve and I enjoy seeing them come up with better solutions than I did and I, I enjoy all that. So I, where do you see yourself at 70 years old? Now, now, because you, know, you, you, you think you know what you see me at 70 years old. Where do you see yourself at 70 years old? Well, hopefully retired. Yeah. I mean, You'll be retired I, before then. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I don't know where I would be, but I know I, I definitely don't want to. I want to have some time, um, and I want to have a business. For me, from day one, it was like, what do I leave after me to my children and to also to Michael's children, to our children, Noam and me, and to. Um, I want to leave something for them that can work on its own, and they can also be a part of it if they want to. And I just want to make this a strong, viable business. And I don't want to grow too much, but I want to grow as much as we need to. Um, One of the things that I think there's this interesting duality with the, your bit with Florentine Kitchen Knives. One is, is it's very successful in regards to uh, people to recognize it. I mean, it's a recognizable, like I said, as far as custom knife businesses go you're extraordinarily recognizable but you're also very customer oriented to the point where if you go to the Florentine Kitchen Knives uh, store in Barcelona it's very difficult to walk out of an out of there with a knife because everything is so custom and mm -hmm. I don't you know 
and you're and you're also you've created something that's different than a storefront. It's not really a storefront. It's a window into the building of knives where you have you're sitting there right now. Yeah. You have the the space is cut in two where the front half is the display area and there's this beautiful desk and there are these there's this case with these beautiful knives and all the different knives from the beginning to the end. Once in a while, mine was up there. I don't think it's. I think it's not there. Now it's in, it's in use. It's in use. It's, it's in use. Now. The one I was when I when you had my knife when my knife was in that lock, I was just like, I fucking <laughs> made it. I fucking made it. But now I know that you're gonna you're using I'm it to pry open. It. Yeah, you're I'm using co- it to pry open anchovy cans. Uh, I know up, all about it. It's fine. It's fine with me. But it's it's you've created something where people can walk in and then these big beautiful windows and it, it's a glass partition so people can see grinding and people can see the assembling and stuff like that. You are creating this experience, and I wonder if that experience limits you in regards to the output. Yeah. <laughs> Short answer is yes. Yeah. It definitely limits our, our ability. We cannot make too much noise, too much dust. We, we're limited by a lot of the constraints of being inside a residential. We actually, we, you know we live upstairs. We, yeah. When you were here, we didn't, but now we live upstairs in the shop. Right. Uh, it's a, it's still a neighborhood. It's still people live here, um, and we are we're thinking about it. I think we spoke about it that we we are thinking about uh, moving to just to be to have well maybe to have a, a factory shop, but to have just a proper factory in a more industrial zone of the city, and be able to make more knives. And I think it, it also in terms of the health, our health of the employees. Uh, Everything from from sound to dust, everything can improve uh, in such a facility. And this one is good. It's good for content, obviously. And it's yeah. a big reason why we made it because we wanted to. We know this is the game. Like you have to create content. You you're much better at it than we are, but you do it constantly, no. and it gives us an easy way to do it because we have everything here in our fingertips, and everything right. looks looks nice. Um, but yeah, it definitely limits us. And maybe if we could afford to have both, we might do it. Because, well, I have conversations with Tony all the time, and now we have Allison, and we have uh, we have this great customer service person, Allison, who is fantastic. It's changed. Mm-hmm. It's helped. We have these weekly zoom meetings and it's like if it feels like you were talking about growing up i feel like i'm a grown-up i do feel like a kid sitting in the meeting but i love it (laughs) it's really the two of them are so great and they ask me the best questions and we're really kind of pushing each other and one of the things that we have to explain to her because we're training her and she's doing great and everything like that but the fact is is like the the customer experience has limited our growth because it is so time consuming the yeah. customer experience is the one of the main problems with our company growing. The customer experience and the volume are our two biggest issues because yeah. it's just – and that's one of the reasons why Zwilling and Global and, and Henkel and they don't have a customer experience. I mean, their customer yeah. experience is in the packaging. Like their <laughs> customer experience is the packaging. So it's like it is that, it is that question and then I think about you guys because – it is so customer oriented in terms of you can pick the colors that you want and you can pick the steel that you want. You can pick if you want a mustard patina or you can think of your, or you can pick a, and it, and it, and it does limit you in regards to that growth because it's that 
personal part, oh, even to the point where it's stacking the handles. You, you're, you're making it more of a, it's more of a, it's a, it's a fine tuned thing. And I, I just, I find that, I find that, I find it all to be very fascinating and talking but, to you, especially because you've really inspired us in regards to thinking sure. about it more like a business. Well, I think we, we did put a lot of money into it because we, if we had to, to have a conversation with each one of our customers about exactly what he wants in the knife, which was a thing that happened in the past, uh, we would never get anywhere. So we've put a lot of money into a website that enables you to see what you're doing and to actually like physically see the, the custom choices that you make for the handle. Yes, it has some limitations. Uh, uh, you cannot do anything you want that's actually possible, but it saves a lot of that time. But we also enjoy, I think the real, like one of the most enjoyable things obviously is, is that interaction with customers. So I wouldn't want to, like, I make sure I reply to all my Instagram messages, comments, at least with something just, I enjoy, I mean, I, I can't believe it, you know, I still. I, Why? Every time, you know how it is. I mean, you. I think we, we talked about it. Uh, and when you were in art school, every time you put something out, it's like you put your heart on the table. It's like it's a difficult experience. And we, we still feel this way about every knife we send out. And to get, and 99% of the time, you don't get any feedback. So you're like, right. I don't know. Did I do good? Did I do, did I do bad? And the, the, the times that you get that good feedback is just amazing. It just gives you gives you that lift what's next for you guys well we need we need to grow a little bit because we were working uh very hard and all the team here we're now a team of six we we work super hard in a very tight quarters so we need to grow a little bit we think we might uh invest we i'm thinking about technology i think there's no way around it for me the issue was never uh, did you do it yourself? What a lot of makers tend to ask themselves for me is how will it be done most efficiently and right. the best way? Um, I don't care if you ground it, if my CNC machine can grind it better than you. I actually, I really honestly don't care. Uh, so, and it gives my customer, the, the final customer, the, a better price because right. um, that's the way I'm thinking about mixing. Obviously, uh, sharpening is done by hand always. And that's like, that's something that I don't see that, that cannot change. And, and all the handle finishing is done by hand because you need to, you need, you right. just, it, it gives you the chance. One of the reasons why I physically sharpen each and every knife that comes out of the shop is that I get to see it before it leaves. And the, the day I let this go is, is going to be a good day because it means that I have a lot of confidence in, in everything we do that I'm sure that it's going to come out perfect. But I haven't let it go yet. But not to say anything about the team that works with us now. It's just it my problem. While. Yeah, it's just yeah. my internal issue. Of the, this sure. is a young thing. This is three years old. That, that actual physical shop where we make. The, the brand is nine years old, but... Yeah. 
it's that's listen i'm looking for we're look we we in regards to like thinking about growth that we had a meeting and and uh allison said to us well what what is your what are we what's the problem what's the it was it was it was a very bold thing to say it wasn't what the problem is but like where do you see what's the direction and we're just like it's a volume and then mm-hmm. Tony said to me, he's like, you got to hire somebody. So it's like, we're lo- we are looking for someone. And then the people who have come here, as you know, yeah. the people who have come for you. I was always on your you, case. What'd you say? I know you were always on my case. We had two different, we have two different things. We, 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 there are two different things are taking the labor out of it or getting more labor. We're, we're now we're at the point now where I want to get more labor in here. And you know, that's, that's the most important thing. But with COVID, it got me very like, Actually, it made me a better knife maker because I was far more focused on the efficiency. And now mm-hmm. that we have more people on the payroll, it's the efficiency has made the we've been do we've been they've been shaking trees. We've been pulling in a lot more money, but at the same time as I've gotten faster at all of it. Like now, right. I feel like I've gotten to the point where I'm ready to have more people. And I used to have some guys in here. You start them with the hand sanding, and then as you know, it's like maybe you you know maybe you trust someone to to do something. It's gonna it might take a bit, but yeah. we're there. We're in certain, certain terms of forward thinking, and I I just out of curiosity, Tony says to me, he says to me, um, you know, I don't know if you follow cryptocurrency at all, but Tony sends me a message. He says, you know, Bitcoin's up high, yeah, up high right now. You want, he's like, you want you, to start getting like, bitcoins? He said. He said to me. He said to me a few months ago. He's like, you. We should be start. We should start taking Bitcoin. And I know Craig had mentioned that. Craig had mentioned that he he told me that he wants to start taking Bitcoin. Would you consider taking Bitcoin? I have a very strong position, and I actually have a friend, uh, Roland Lanier, a French maker, who one of the people I actually also went to to learn how to how to build an actual workshop. Uh, he's he was taking cryptocurrency for, for years now, at least four years, I think. I am very much against it, really? just because I don't think it's it's viable. It's definitely not in the best interest of the planet in terms of uh, the amount of electricity it uses up. Uh, it's bad for the planet. It's just bad, and I, I don't like it, and I'm not going to be in it. And if in terms of also in terms of how the way I'm thinking forward for this company, I think the way we should all think is about being better. Uh, more sustainable, having more sustainable business in terms of uh, uh, ecologically sustainable. So if you don't take Bitcoin and I do take Bitcoin, we're kind of evening each other out, right? Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I'll call Tony right away. And I'll say we won't take Bitcoin. Tomer said don't take Bitcoin. We're not going to take Bitcoin. It's also it's, so, it's speculation. I mean, would you gamble or would you just, would you like to work for 100% sure you get your money or maybe 50-50% sure you get your money? It, it, I find it to be very fascinating. And it's like we put a little, we actually put Full Blast money into it. I, full Blast full blast podcast, I got some Axe Wax money and, and we were up <laughs> a grand already. So, so well, I mean, at the same time, it's like my wife said to me, she said to me, uh, we never take chances. Like she's like, we're now 47, we're about right. to be 48. And we've never taken these investment chances on ourselves. And I said, okay, well, I got a little bit of Axe Wax money. I'll put it into Bitcoin. And we put it into Bitcoin, and it goes up, and it goes down. And when it goes up, it, I mean, it's like, you know, we're up a grand already. I mean, we're not up because I didn't, as Craig told me, I sent a message to Craig, and he says, I said, you know, we made $1,000. He goes, you didn't make $1,000. You didn't sell it yet, so you didn't make shit. Exactly. I'm like, all right, well, fine. I, I got you. But, I, yeah, it is something that I just, I, 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 
when I think of you, especially, I think of like your your forward thinking nature, especially in this business. I don't think there's anyone I whose opinion I trust more than you. Um, I have a sh- I have a very short list of people whose opinion I trust in the knife making business. I will tell you it is Jared Thatcher, Jonathan Porter, and you. And those are the three guys that I like really idolize in terms of smart it. business minds. And um, I'm trying to think of any. Oh, and Quentin and Quentin Middleton. And it's like I just I just wonder what the future holds for you. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Well, yeah, definitely. It's hard to think about everything when you run a small business that's for sure and but i i try to stay informed you know as much as i can even if like watch the news or read the the paper or in the end it gets to you i mean it it affects the decision there are big things happening in the world and they're going to affect you eventually so you got to be aware and you got to you know point somewhere so you know where to go mm. well Florentine Kitchen Knives. It's Tomer Botner, ladies and germs. I know you follow him, and you should be f- watching everything. You should be watching him like a hawk, but not ripping him off. <laughs> follow, what, <laughs> follow what he's doing, but fucking know that we're no, we know when you're ripping him off. I see people <laughs> ripping him off, and I don't like it. I don't want to see it anymore. Knock it off. Find your own shit. Everybody go, go take a product design class and, and fail, and then learn how to come back from it. Tomer Botner, you are one of my close friends. I hope, hope, hope things in the world get a little bit more stable and we can, I can come out there and see you again. And we can do another class. Or when you come to New York, we're going to go. Well, I'll take you to a Knicks game. Or I, mean, I don't know if I could take you to the, see the Shea Stadium. I don't know if I could take you to Shea Stadium. I'll take you somewhere. I'm not but, going to the Yankees team. That's all right. Fine. That's fine. Okay. Don't relax. We'll, we'll figure something out. We'll find a middle <laughs> ground. Well, maybe we'll go see the Cyclones. We'll go Cass, see the Brooklyn Cyclones. Cass's Deli. That's where we're Cass's going. Cass's Deli. We're going to go see Cass's Deli. Guys, Florentine Kitchen Knives is outstanding one of my close friends i love talking with tomer i really appreciate you coming on here i know you were hesitant for a while but we worked it out i i loosened you up we, you know everything was great it was an amazing conversation you're a fantastic person go follow him go check out his go check out what he's doing I mean, go check out what he's doing it is, uh, is marvelous and once again tomer and and gnome are icons as far as i'm concerned and i appreciate you being here buddy my pleasure thank you for having me All right, guys, we're going to see you next week. Have a great week. Thanks again, Tomer. The Full Blast Podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax, an all-natural, food-safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, If you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.